Again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 24, 1 through 17, starting in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May my Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. This is God's holy word. I'm going to pray and ask for his blessing on it this evening. Gracious and heavenly Father, as we read this passage about David, about Saul, about this interaction that they have, there are things in it that are hard for us to understand, hard for us to understand how they're relevant. Dynamics of monarchies and political intrigue and other things that that feel very distant from our experience in a day-to-day life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and to understand what you want for us to get from this tonight. Even though there's stories of, of kings and, and adventures in a, in, a, in a book like this, in a, in a historical account like this, Lord, uh, the, the, the things that David is going through, the faith that he has, the temptations that he experiences are common to all of us. I pray, God, that you would help us to see and to know and to understand what you want us to know about yourself, about your son Jesus, from these pages, from these words. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us to help us to understand it, because we can't do it on our own. I pray that you would send your Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, to open our ears, and to work into our hearts the truths of the gospel that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. I pray especially that you would send your spirit upon me to help me to talk about this, to 
talk about and teach these things in a way that is good and true and helpful for your people. I pray for these students that you would bless them, that you would encourage them by these words. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Have any of you ever given a resume in like a job application that had information on it that you knew was not true? I found a study earlier today that was done in the fall that said that a sample size of I think a little over 2,000 Americans. It said that fully 55% of Americans knowingly and intentionally lie on their resumes. 55%. And they have a list of the top eight categories of what they lie about. The first is, uh, uh, I'm going to start from the bottom. So number eight is they lie about uh, employer references. So they like, fabricate references for people who worked for them in the past, or who they've worked for in the past. 21% of Americans do that. Next, uh, they lie about job-specific software and or equipment skills. So you might say that you're proficient with uh, Excel or something like that when you're not. 33.5%. Uh, the sixth most common thing is salary information. So you might say that you have higher or lower than you actually had. 33.6% of people lie about that. Uh, then high school details, that's 39.2%, so information about your high school, maybe your GPA. The fourth most is personal details, your name or age or other basic information like that. 39.5% of Americans lie about that on their resume. The third most is your college degree, 41% of people lie about that. Um, just general skills is the second highest, 43.1%. And the number one is previous work experience, 55.4% of people lie about jobs they've had. So none of y'all should do that, right? That's, that's bad. That's a crime. That's fraud. Why do these people do it? Why are there so many Americans? Why are there so many people who are, some, who are lying to people on their resumes? They're doing it, right, because they are hungry. They're so hungry to get ahead that they're taking the easy route, and they think if I can just kind of fudge the numbers a little bit, if I can just convince people I'm a little more excellent, more amazing, more exciting of a candidate than I am, then maybe I can get this job. They lie about their credentials. They are tempted by this sort of like, well, I can just tell a little lie. Who's it going to hurt? And they get ahead. But then, you know, if you kind of play that out, there's some jobs that are really important for people to have the credentials that they say that they do. David faces a similar temptation in this story, right? He's in the wilderness. He's been out in the wilderness, like full on, just out in the middle of nowhere, hiding. Um, some of y'all remember last week that Saul attempted to kill David in the the chapter from chapter uh, 20 up to or chapter 18 up to chapter 20, there are six attempts on David's life, six assassin, assassination attempts that Saul makes on David's life. And after the sixth one, David's like, "All right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go hide. I need to go hide in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness." And then this thing happens. Saul has been unjustly, through no good reason, Saul's been trying to kill David, and then all of a sudden, like that. David is in a very, or Saul is in a very vulnerable position in front of David. And so David has a choice. He has a temptation. Right? Saul has been proven not to have the credentials. He's been disqualified from being king, and yet he's still the king at this point. David has been anointed as king. God has chosen him to be the next king. And there's an opportunity here for him to just take it. And what I want you all to see from this, what I want you all to see from David's actions is that by his actions here, the way that he handles this situation, he's proving himself to be the right king here in this story. By his actions, by his behavior, by the way that he lives, the way that he makes choices, he has the credentials to be the king for Israel that, that they need, that God wants them to have. 
He's being faced with temptation here, right? Is he the sort of king that points people to God? Or is is he a king that serves himself and that does his own thing? A king that's destructive and oppressive and bad. Right? The first week of this study, we kind of asked ourselves the question, who rules us? Who rules you? We all have a spiritual king, a spiritual ruler, a thing on the thrones of our hearts. With our actions, behaviors, and hearts, we pursue whatever it is that we worship. And we, whatever it is that we hope will give us meaning and significance, that will give us the good life. But those kings, right, those idols, those idol kings, they do not... Show mercy. They do not lead us to the lives that God has designed for us. They cannot make us holy. They're not merciful. They do not take care of us. They do not save us. And ultimately, right, uh, the, the right king in this story points us to the true king. The right king, the main point, if y'all don't get anything else from this, the right king of our hearts, the right king of Israel, points people to the faithfulness of God. It reminds us of the love and grace and mercy of God. And it, it lives in a manner that implies that that's true. It doesn't just say it with its mouth. It, it, it lives as if that is true as well. The right king points, pe- points his people to the faithfulness of God. And there's two aspects that we see David living that out in. Two things that we see David sort of exemplifying in this passage that, that tell us he is the right king that is pointing his people to God. The first is David's trust in God. Or you could say David's faith in God. So David's trust. The second is the David's mercy that he asked for Saul. So the first point that I want you all to see is David's trust. And the second point that I want you all to see is David's mercy. David's trust in God, David's mercy for Saul. So the first point, David's trust. Right, David and his men are hiding at a place called En Gedi. This is a place in the middle of nowhere that is a network of canyons, caves, plateaus, and badlands that they call the wilderness of Engedi. It's a place where there's no villages, there's no farmlands, uh, there's no shepherds, there's no flocks of sheep that go into the wilderness because it's, it's dangerous. And it's a natural place to hide. And he's hiding amongst the caves there. right? Like I mentioned earlier, he is hiding from Saul. After his many assassination attempts, David has fled into the wilderness. He's gone and hidden there. And a group of men have gathered around them. Some of them are kind of people who were just allies with David. Some of them are actual bandits and criminals that they kind of recognize that David's this good military leader, and so they kind of gather around him and form this, this group of guys. And after Saul has, has sort of fought with the Philistines, he's returned from there, and he hears, he gets his intel, David is in the wilderness of Angedi. And Saul doesn't rest. He chooses 3,000 of Israel's most elite soldiers and he's chasing after David, trying to find him, trying to track him down, make no mistake, so that Saul can kill him. That's what Saul wants. Saul knows that David is a threat to his throne. He knows that David's the next heir to the throne, and Saul wants to take him out because he sees him as a threat. But then something happens, something that, you know, if we were just looking at this story on our own, we would be like, oh, this is a coincidence. But there are no coincidences, right? This is a part of God's plan. Saul... There's no way to get around this. He has to, he has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and he goes into this cave, right? There's no bathrooms in the wilderness. So Saul's like, I'm going to go to this quiet, secluded spot. Uh, I'm going to go to the restroom, uh, relieve myself. But there's a catch, right? There's, there's something that Saul did not expect. He chooses the exact cave that David and his men were hiding in. The exact cave where David 
and his band of loyal, ruthless warriors are hiding in the inner parts. Right? And, and, and here's David's chance. It's so easy. It's right there. All David has to do is to, to reach out his hand and take it. To reach out his hand and kill Saul. And it can all be over. He doesn't have to live in the wilderness anymore. He can go home. He can see his family. He can take the throne. All, right? all of Israel loves David at this point. He's very popular. All, Saul, all David had to do was to cut Saul's throat and it would be done. It would be over. And the men encouraged him to do this. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. It's important to note that there's actually no record up to this point of God saying that to David. God had told David, I'm going to make you king. And so maybe it's that these men were kind of uh, sort of reading between the lines of the things that God had told David. But God had not at this point in David's life said anything like that. It's actually weird because it's similar to something that God promises to David later that, that, that God is going to give all of David's enemies into his hand. But these men are, are basically tempting David, saying, hey, this would be so easy. This would be really uh, good for us. If you just kill him, like, look, you know, he happens to choose this cave. Clearly the Lord is wanting to deliver him into your hand. He's been so cruel to you, so mean to you, so evil to you. Just take him out. But he doesn't. He's not willing to do that. He's not willing to stretch out his hand and to strike Saul down. Why? You see that David, he, he, he starts to move towards him. He goes and he, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. But that's it. That's all he can do. And he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. He calls Saul my Lord still. David had served Saul. Saul had been his king. But then he goes a step further. He calls Saul the Lord's anointed. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. What's David doing here? Part of why David is not taking out Saul is because he still loves and worships and honors God as God. God is holy to David. God is precious and valuable, and God's word and God's law matters. Right? All, all David has to do is reach out his hand, take the throne. But Saul is the Lord's anointed, and that matters to David. Um, a little bit of background on what it means. What's David talking about the Lord's anointed? Anointing is a, is a ritual, is a process that they would do in the Old Testament, where an individual, when they were anointed, that they were set apart and consecrated to God. This specific bond, this is from a, a, one pastor's commentary on this, a specific bond was established in relation to God in separation from men and women in general, and from the common aspects of life. Therefore, to touch, defile, and attack the anointed one was to approach the Lord himself and seek to defile, harm, and remove the Lord from his rightful place. So David sees Saul. He knows that Saul's anointed. Saul was anointed to be king. God chose Saul to be king, and he was later rejected. But what David is saying is, okay, Saul's still the Lord's anointed. David has such respect for God and God's choices and for the office that God has established that David is not willing to harm Saul, even though it would have been very convenient for him. For David to harm Saul, even though Saul was the man who was most causing hardship in David's life, he would essentially be dishonoring God by attacking the Lord's anointed. Right? He, he does cut off a piece of Saul's robe, and even that is like, like David feels really guilty about that. He's like, oh, his, it says um, that his heart struck him. Afterwards, verse 5, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
Like, you and I might look at that and be like, oh, David, it's fine. Like, you didn't hurt him, for real. Like, you just cut off a piece of his clothing. But even that injury, even that disrespect to the Lord's anointed, David feels guilty for that. And he turns and he repents. He, he asks the Lord's forgiveness. You see, his when it says, and afterward his heart struck him, that's what we would call, like, guilt over sin. When we come to our senses, when we feel conviction over sin, that's what happens in our hearts. We take our sin and we grieve it and we, we try to turn away from it, asking forgiveness from God. David's essentially saying here, whatever happens to me, no matter how difficult it gets, I'm going to serve and honor the Lord. This is what the Bible calls elsewhere holiness. Sometimes you might hear the word holiness and think of people that are like really self-righteous or people that are, you know, just sort of next-level Christians or super extra-spiritual. But that's none of that is really getting at the whole picture of what holiness is. Holiness is basically trusting God, right? the, the trust that people have in God lived out and applied to every area of our lives. Right? David is holy in his political machinations, in that he doesn't scheme and, like, in an underhanded way, take out Saul. David is holy. He lives out in a holy way here, living in the light of the character of God and the faithful faithfulness of God's promises, which is difficult, right? It, it means choosing things that are sometimes not the easy way. It means not living in the way that is easiest often. It means not following the path of least resistance, but following the path that God has called us to follow in his word, right? Essentially, it's living life as a Christian on purpose, letting go of advantages that you might gain or ways that you might get ahead if those things keep you from following God the way that God calls you to. And there's a lot of things, right, that that where we are tempted to, where, where, where it seems like our, our lives would be a lot easier if we could just do this or just do that. But God, right, God calls us to a different sort of life. This example is, is a little bit silly, but... Um, if any of y'all remember in the original trilogy of Star Wars, uh, in Return of the Jedi, towards the end, uh, it's been out for a long time, so I, it, I'm, I'm sorry if this is a spoiler, but um, Luke is face-to-face with the Emperor, right? The last scene, the last showdown in the throne room on the second Death Star. He's offered this temptation, essentially. If you give in to the dark side, if you give in and take the power of the dark side and the force for yourself, you will have the strength to save your friend. And there's a battle going on outside the Death Star. There's spaceships flying around and blowing up and everything. And the good guys are losing. Like, they're getting blown up. It was a trap. But Luke sees the, the more dangerous trap. And he, and he rejects the Emperor's offer. He says, I will never turn to the dark side. Right? He says, you have failed. Talking to the Emperor. I am a Jedi like my father before me. And then he throws his lightsaber away. He lets go of this power... That if he had taken it, he might have gotten a lot stronger. He refuses to take this power for himself. Even though in doing so, in the moment, it actually seems like it from the outside, it's the best way to save his friends in the battle that is raging. Right? And then he gets electrocuted and the Darth Vader like, picks up the Emperor and throws him down the bottomless chasm. Um, but like in that moment, Luke has a choice. He has this easy way that would be to take the dark side, to, fall, to give in to that, to take the power for himself. Or to go through the difficulty, go, go the difficult path and, and say, you know, and, and open himself to the opportunity, the option, where he might lose. In a similar way, David refuses to take this easy path, but he trusts in God to provide for him. Right? He, he doesn't go and kill Saul when he has a chance. Instead, he lets Saul go, and he goes out and he talks to him later. 
Right? Like you might we might read this and be like, okay, David, like at least you didn't kill him, but like why are you going out to talk to him? Now he knows where you are. He's gonna come like finish the job. But he trusts in God. He trusts in God's providence, he trusts in God's love and care for him. In another similar way, Jesus refuses to take the easy way as well. In his life on earth, every moment of Jesus' life, there were temptations to take the easy way. From the start of his ministry, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, who was tempting him, saying, you know, he, after 40 days and 40 nights with no food, the devil saying, hey, make some, you know, do a miracle, make some, make some bread. And Jesus knows that it was not in the will of his father to do that, and so he, he rejects that. The devil says, you know, worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Getting all of the kingdoms of the earth was one of the things that, that God had appointed to be given to Jesus when he had gone to the cross. Essentially, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness to get the kingdom of God, to get all of the things that were coming to him, to get the, all of the, the glory that was to be his without the suffering of the cross. It was to take the easy way. Right? Later in his life, the cross itself, when G, even before that, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asks God, he says, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, but yours be done. He doesn't take the easy way out. He doesn't take the easy path. He goes through suffering. He goes through the hard path in order to save the world, to save us, to save his people. Right? He was faithful. Jesus trusted in God the Father. And apart from God the Father, from his plan, nobody could be saved. Which gives us two implications. The first is that we ought to be a little bit more willing to be frustrated, to be weak, to suffer, to be discouraged. I don't mean like that you should choose those things. But I think a lot of times when we fall into things like that, when we get into hard times like David's, the number one thing that we're looking for is a way out. What's the easiest path for me to not feel this pain or discomfort anymore? And that's not necessarily bad, right? Like, like it's okay to use lawful paths to leave suffering, but sometimes you don't have that option. Uh, one author on this, he says, we sometimes long to find a key or a major breakthrough, quote-unquote, or a decisive insight that will place our Christian living on some kind of higher plane where we are most always above hindrance, frustration, and despair. Now, another way of putting this is, like, if you're struggling, if you are suffering, if you're frustrated, then that's good. Because when we are feeling weak like that, we can feel our nearness to Jesus. We can feel like David in this wilderness. In 2 Corinthians, God promises Paul, he says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is actually perfect in our weakness. Do not despise the ways of Jesus. If you're like, I never want to feel pain, I never want to suffer then there's a way in which you're saying, I never want to be like Jesus. And again, I'm not saying go seek that out. But like, when that suffering comes to you, ask God to meet you in the middle of it, because he will. The second implication is to kind of ask the question is, does whatever rules you in your life, does whatever you know sort of system you have for making decisions and prioritizing your life, does whatever that is lead you to trust God more? Does it lead you to grow in your faith and understanding of Jesus? Right? Like we ought to look at ourselves and understand that as Jesus willingly undertook the hard road so that we could be brought into the family of God, um, that, that, that this was a part of God's plan. Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. And so if that's true, right, if you believe in him, then you have an obligation to try and trust God with your actions like David, like Jesus did. 
to not take the easy route, even if it feels like, oh, this isn't really hurting anyone. Like, are you trusting God with every part of your life? Are you trusting God with how you treat other people? Like, if God was there watching how you talk about people when they're not in the room, do you think that that he would be pleased with that? Do you trust God with how you go about your academics, honoring him and being above reproach? Do you trust God with what you look at on your computer or on your phone when you're alone in the room at night? Are you trusting God with all of those parts of your life? Right, that there are two paths, there are two options. There's an easy route, the, the seemingly easy path, which is that you take life to yourselves. You make life what you want it to be. Right, if David was following that path, he would be killing Saul in the cave and taking a throne for himself in a bloody coup. Or there's trusting in God for our life, honoring God as holy, letting the gospel and letting God's law impact every sphere of our life. And y'all, we don't do this perfectly. We fall, we fail, and the good news of the gospel is that there is always more mercy and more grace in Jesus for us. Because God's mercy is always more. Which brings me to my my second point, that that David shows mercy to Saul. As God shows mercy to us, David has shown mercy to Saul in this passage too. David isn't just sparing Saul's life sort of reluctantly or begrudgingly because he's afraid of God. He actually loves Saul. You can see it in the words uh, when, when David talks to him. He's being incredibly merciful towards Saul, and we see that in this in their interaction after the cave incident. As before, we get into that mercy is is um, mercy is essentially showing favor or love to someone who does not deserve it, showing favor or love or kindness to someone who cannot pay you back. So mercy might be sort of forgiving someone who uh, who, who has hurt you or offended you. It might also mean uh, serving someone who is not as well off as you, serving someone who has a need. Mercy is a pretty broad topic. Uh, but, but here we see David being merciful towards Saul. It is true that he's sparing Saul's life because he has respect for God. He, he honors God as holy. But he also does so because he has a mercy and love for Saul, even still, even after all of the things that Saul has done. Right, right after he cuts Saul's robe, he runs out of the cave and calls after him, My lord the king. Still being you know, very respectful to Saul. And not just that, but when Saul looks behind him, David bows down with his face to the earth. He's, he's very vulnerable right here. Like It would be super easy for the 3,000 elite soldiers that are with Saul to come and strike David down. But, but David does it nonetheless. And his words are so interesting. He says, why are you listening to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? We've never seen anyone say this in the book before. Um, and he, call, he keeps going on about how he means Saul no harm, how he's not going to hurt Saul, how he's not going to do anything against him. Right? He, David is even in his heart not believing bad of Saul. When he, he says the bit about, like, why are you listening to these people who are giving you bad advice? He's showing that even in David's heart, he is trying to believe the best of Saul, to view him in the most charitable light. David is, like, not even murdering Saul in his own heart, even though there would be Really, really, like, understandable reasons to do so. Saul had tried to kill him, had tried to pursue him, to kill him. Right? Saul, and Saul's doing that because he does not trust God. He does not trust the Lord. His God is power, and he's trying to hold on to it by any means necessary. 
But Saul calls out and he shows Saul, or David calls out and he shows Saul that he has done nothing wrong. And he follows it up with an even more surprising thing. He vows to never do anything, to never harm against Saul. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And later on, he says um, in verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judged and give sentence between me and you. Like He's saying basically, like I am not going to be the one who does anything against you, Saul. I'm not going to take vengeance. I'm not going to attack you at all. My hand shall not be against you. No matter what Saul does, David is saying he will not attack. He will not harm Saul. This is merciful. This is a merciful action. Saul had just done evil to David. Like that is all basically from chapter 18 up until now. Saul had just been cruel and evil and wicked towards David. And yet David says, "I'm, I'm not going to attack you. But that's not like a, David's not being sort of a coward. He's not being, even necessarily being a pacifist. He's saying, God, I'm entrusting you with judgment. Lord, you are just. You are good. You are merciful. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand will not be against you. He cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, you do it. You take care of it. I trust you, God. And so therefore he shows mercy to Saul and Saul leaves. This actually would not be the end of it, because uh, even after this, uh, if, if you read on in the rest of chapter 24, Saul's like, oh, you know, David, you're going to be the king. Uh, I'm going to trust, you know, that, that, that you're going to be the king, and that's going to be fine, and I'm not going to try to attack you anymore. And then later in uh, chapter 26, Saul does, like, the exact same thing. He kind of chases after David through a crazy circumstance. David, like, ends up in Saul's tent, and he can kill him, but David decides not to because he loves him. He shows mercy on him. So this happens again. It all happens all over again in a couple more chapters. We're not necessarily going to go over that. But like David has another opportunity similar to this and again shows him mercy. How could he do that? Why would he show mercy to an enemy like this? I think it's because he loves God and he knows that God has shown him mercy too. In the 1980s, there was a – I want to tell you all about a man named Steve McDonald who was a police officer in New York City – And on July 12, 1986, he was shot in the neck. He was paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. And at the time, on the day that he was shot, right, the the doctors really thought that he wasn't going to live, but they were able to save his life. He had been married to a woman named Patty Ann for just eight months. And she was three months pregnant. And Steve McDonald writes about how he went through this process of being incredibly angry at the man who shot him. Understandably so, maybe. And he writes about how he felt really low, and the more that he got angry, the less he wanted to live. But then something happened after six months after he was shot, being paralyzed from the neck down. His wife, this is his words, Patty Ann gave birth to a baby boy. We named him Connor. To me, Connor's birth was like a message from God that I should live and live differently. It was clear to me that I had to respond to that message. I prayed that I would be changed, that the person that I was would be replaced by something new. And so Steve forgave the man who shot him. Him and his wife like called a press conference, and they made a public announcement saying that we forgive this guy who had shot him. It was like in, in, a, in a sort of just robbery gone wrong. 
He publicly told everyone that, that he forgave this man. And when asked why, Steve said this. He said, I forgave him because I believe that the only thing worse than receiving a bullet in my spine would have been to nurture revenge in my heart. Such an attitude would have extended injury to my soul, hurting my wife, son, and others even more. It's bad enough that the physical effects are permanent, but at least I can choose to prevent spiritual injury. Stephen Goddard went on to live, I think he passed away in 2017. He lived for many more years with his wife and son. But Steve McDonald showed mercy, forgiving this man who did not deserve it, for much the same reasons that David shows mercy to Saul. There's a sense in which David would have been justified to kill Saul here. If you take away the aspect of the Lord's anointed, Saul had been trying to kill David. It's just common sense. It's self-defense. But David also knows that to be the king who God wants him to be, he cannot take vengeance in his own heart. He cannot do anything but show mercy and show, show love and forgiveness. And it's precisely because he knows that God is in control, right? that God has already promised to give him the kingdom, that he believes in God's justice and his mercy, and that he also is able to show mercy to Saul and to not take his life, to not take his life into his hands. Right? We see that David's mercy is connected to his trust in God's justice and in God's mercy. So also, you know, kind of asking if this is true, like the implication then is to ask, does whatever rules you, like whatever is the king of your heart, does that lead you to show mercy to other people? Does that lead you to show mercy the way that David does, the way that God calls us to? The motivation for mercy is this, that if you are in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have received his righteousness even though you don't deserve it. You've received eternal life even though you don't deserve it. And so that means that you have an obligation to show mercy wherever you can. And if you're not willing to show mercy, if you're not willing to be merciful to other people, there's a sense in which you are not living in light of the reality of what Jesus has done for you. You're nurturing vengeance, and it will explode out of you in destructive ways, either hurting yourself or your family or your friends or other people. And, and I want you all to see this also. Like Some of us, some of you all have, have really hurt, some of you all have really had people hurt and wound you in really deep ways. And I want to be sensitive to that. I'm not saying that you just pretend like none of that happened or that that didn't matter. God really cares about the wounds that people inflict upon the people that he loves. God is just. We see even in this passage that Saul had really hurt and wounded David. But I want you all to see that the prayers that David prays in verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, they're not just sort of flippant, oh, kind of brushed under the rug prayers. David's saying, may the Lord judge between us. May the Lord avenge the wounds that you have done upon me to you. Right? Like, for those of you, for those of us, like when we are wounded, when we are hurt, what if the first prayers that we made are the ones similar to David right here? Lord, may you judge between us. May the Lord avenge us. Paul commands us in Romans, he says, uh, do not avenge yourselves on anyone else, for as the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Justice matters, but we ought to ultimately be trusting God to be the one to give us justice. God cares about you. God cares about your lives. God cares about your pain. But you, having received mercy, are to show mercy to others. And this looks different for different people, right? One implication of being merciful is this, is that you ought to look at your own sin too. Look at your own hearts. Look at the own problems that you have. 
One way you can be merciful towards others is to be mindful of the ways that you are difficult to be around. To be mindful of the ways that you hurt other people. And not if, if someone says, hey, like, I don't like when you say that. Not to brush off as being like, oh, they're too sensitive. Like, no, you, you need to look at yourself. You need to ask yourself and say, man, okay, like, how can I love other people better? Maybe they have a point. Maybe I am being rude. Maybe I am being really unkind with my words. That's what it means to be merciful. There's a promise, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount. God says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a, kind of the reverse of that is true. He says, if you are not willing to show mercy towards other people, then you have not received mercy from God. We have to show mercy to people. We have to be merciful. It's not an option. I'd be open to the idea that you might be a part of the problem in relationships, in group dynamics, in friendships. Right? David is so humble, and he is so the opposite of prideful here. Like the Part of the reason why he is not taking out his hand and taking Saul out is because David knows his own sin as well. He honors God as king. He knows his own sin, and he shows mercy. One last thing on, on showing mercy. right? David is good. He shows mercy to Saul, but David also doesn't trust him. David does not go home with Saul. It says at the end of this chapter in verse 22, it says, David swore this to Saul that he was not going to uh, wipe out Saul's extended family. David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his wife went back up into the stronghold. They went back into the wilderness. They went back into the rocks. They went back into the places they, they were hiding. Why is that? Because he knows that Saul might still kill him. Saul has proven himself to not be trustworthy. He's proven himself to be a wicked man. Mercy and forgiveness do not always entail a restoration of trust and relationship. Sometimes they do, but not always. There are some people who have hurt you so badly that you should not continue having a relationship with them. Showing mercy to them means not desiring vengeance upon them in your heart, but it also means separating from them and not letting them continue to hurt you. The Lord desires us to preserve ourselves in our own life, generally speaking. It's an implication of the sixth commandment is to preserve your own life and the life of others. And so mercy does not entail lying down and being a doormat and letting yourself continue to be wounded and hurt. You can set up healthy boundaries too. That is a way that you can be merciful because in that way it prevents that person from having opportunities to sin. David's trust in God and his mercy towards his enemies ultimately foreshadows the absolute faith and the infinite mercy of Jesus. Right? David is the right king for Israel. Throughout this, these stories, throughout these accounts, we're seeing that David's the right king. David's the right guy for the job. He's the guy who God has chosen. He's the right king for Israel in this time. But he's not perfect. He's a sinner. He struggles with things. But just like David is the right king for, at the right time in this moment for Israel, Jesus is the perfect king of the universe now and forever. And he's currently sitting on the throne Right? He should also be sitting on the throne of your life as well, in a sort of subjective, perceived sense. Anything else that you might put there, whether it's performance, getting the right job, making enough money to kind of pay for all the things that you want, getting the right grades, having the right friend group, having some kind of experience, maybe, you know, whatever it might be, that thing will not point you to God. It will not help you grow in your faith and trust. And it will not show you mercy, and it will not lead you to show others mercy. Instead, right, let Jesus reign in your hearts, and he will show you mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, you have shown us great mercy.
From the day that you created the earth, from the day that you formed each of us, before we were even born, you have shown us mercy, you have shown us grace, you've shown us kindness. I pray that as we consider these things, as we look at David's life, the ways that it points us ahead to Jesus, that you would show us just through your kindness ways that you want us to grow and learn and change. I pray that you would encourage all of these students, that you would help us in every way to become the men and women that you want us to be. Sanctify us by your word, by your truth. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.